What is your killer strategy? The one that gives your business the ultimate bulletproof competitive advantage. Welcome to Your Advantage Play with your host, Joel Block. Former professional blackjack player and card counter who left Las Vegas and spent his life in that giant casino on Wall Street in the hedge fund and venture capital businesses. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. How often do you wake up in the morning and wonder, why is it that we keep releasing products that fail? It might be that you have products that go into development and they just never come out of the cycle. It might be that you announce the product and then the market rejects it out of hand, which is very embarrassing. Because most of what companies do is gambling. Most of the time, they just lack basic research skills to figure out what's going to work. To address these issues, Tony Elwood. Tony, welcome to the show. Joe, thanks for inviting me. I certainly this, appreciate it. This is going to be a great discussion because you have a deep, deep background uh, with substantial companies that uh, that do these exact kinds of things. And I don't want to, you know, tell your story for you, but uh, tell us a little bit about your IBM experience and that failed launch that you uh, lived through back in the eighties. Yeah, like you said, it was quite embarrassing. <laughs> the uh, the embarrassment came when the the day after the product was introduced, the headlines in the Wall Street Journal read, "The PC Junior is a flop." <laughs> now you could only imagine with that announcement, we thought, how could they have gotten that so wrong? Uh, but the, the what you know, of course, the truth was we're the ones that got it wrong, and it took. Now listen, you know, some some of the gray hairs may remember the PC Junior because that was the birth of the PCs in the in the middle of the eighties, right? But we have younger uh, listeners too. Tell them what the PC Junior was, or just kind of give them a little bit of background. Yeah, the PC Junior was supposed to be uh, IBM's entree into the home computer market, where we were going to beat Apple and take over the space. And as you can tell, the story went in the opposite direction. Apple took over the space and IBM went walking away with, the, you know, wagging their tail between their legs. And what really intrigued me was how did the people at the Wall Street Journal know it was a flop the day it was introduced? So clearly they were evaluating it against some set of metrics that IBM didn't use to build the product. But I thought, if we only knew what metrics our customers we're going to use to evaluate our product once we create it. We could just create the product to address those metrics, and you know we'd have a different headline. You know, IBM PC Junior is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And so that that sent me on this path to figure out well, how do we stack the odds in our favor? You know, one of the things that I, I remember, I remember, uh, you know, as a youngster, I was at Price Waterhouse, and all of the computers were IBM. PC computers, every single yeah. computer in the 1980s, they were all IBM. And, and I remember guys used to go to Comdex, which was the big show at that time, uh, mm -hmm. saying that you bought IBM because if something went wrong, you tell the boss, well, it's IBM. How much better could I have done? You know, but they did make a couple of giant blunders. They made blunders in, in the junior. They made blunders uh, with their, uh, by giving Bill Gates uh, Microsoft, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, the whole operating system, you know, they, uh, they made some mistakes. So, just just tell us a little bit more about what was going on you know at that time and what you guys did with that well as when the when the wall street journal came out with that headline i thought well i'd love to go investigate this so i went and did some research inside ibm to figure out you know what market research did ibm do to uh, figure out that this product was going to win and and uh, i was surprised to find out that not much 
it was more of a technology first play where you know we we're great at technology and we had the means to develop this device but it didn't provide utility to the home users in fact they were uh, arming it with the same kind of business programs business people were using like you saw you know all around businesses uh, that you that you're familiar with uh, but it was a different set of people trying to get a different set of jobs done, and that's why it failed. So again, I, I went on this long journey to figure out uh, why products fail. And I found out very quickly, it's not just IBM. It's every company that struggles with uh, creating winning products. And this isn't just true in the 1980s. It's still true today. Uh, you can look at different figures, but roughly you know, 9 out of 10, 8 out of 10 products fail like you said either they go into development and never come out or they get out of development and get launched and they fail in the marketplace so the question of course becomes how do you stack the odds in your favor how do you how do you come up with a solution that you know is going to win in the market before you even start developing it now most people well, let's, say, so let's talk let's talk about that let's talk about uh, how do you stack the deck in your favor so what were some of the things that the wall street journal knew that ibm didn't know well, they knew what metrics people were going to use to judge the value of the product because they were the customer, right? And the, the key would be understanding what those metrics are way up front. So in other words, make sure you're going to get the job done a lot better for customers. Um, let, let me jump into the way we like thinking about our approach and why it works, right? Instead of a uh, ideas-first approach to innovation, where you come up with the idea and hope it wins. What we're going to and, and hope, and by the way, when I say wins, the only way it's going to win is it satis if it satisfies a good number of unmet customer needs, right? So you're coming up with a concept, you hope it's going to satisfy needs, and if it does, it'll win. Well, we're going to flip that around and say, well, rather than coming up with the ideas first, let's understand all the customer's needs first and figure out which are unmet and take those top unmet needs and and then sit down and conceptualize a solution that will address those top unmet needs. And now you're stacking the odds in your favor because you know that this product you just conceived already, you know, it does satisfy unmet needs. So when you go build it and put it out in the market, the chances of, uh, of it succeeding go up dramatically. You're stacking the odds in your favor. When I first described this back to well, some of my first clients at Motorola, they said, that sounds like it's cheating. <laughs> and, and I thought, well, I guess it does if you just you if you uh, you want to stick with the status quo and not take you know, uh, a, a different approach that you can use information to help guide your decision making process. You know, I, I guess there are people who think that to preparing, practicing, organizing, planning maybe maybe they, all those things are cheating. You know, I, I don't know. To me, it's uh, it's common sense. But so uh, so you got this. Uh, you kind of what is it like surveys? I mean, how do you figure out what it is people? Because the truth is, people don't know what they don't know, so they don't know what might help them until it's really right there in front of them. Yeah, that's right. People don't know what solutions they want. That's the way I like to say it. It goes back to Henry Ford's quote. You know, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Right. But what he's what he's really saying is people don't know what solutions they want because right? they don't know what's possible. Because they don't know what po what's possible, and why should they? You know, they're not the scientists or the engineers or the material experts, right? But what customers do know is what jobs they're trying to get done, and they also know how they measure success along each step of the way. So, if people are wanting to cook a meal, 
right? Prepare a meal, for example. That's a job that they're trying to get done. Well, they know that as they prepare that meal, they want to minimize the likelihood of overcooking the, the food or minimize the likelihood of undercooking or minimize the time it takes to cook it evenly throughout or minimize the time it takes to prep the food or to clean up, right? There's a whole series of metrics they're using to say, hey, product A helps me get that job done a lot better than product B. Now, if I know all those metrics up front and they are discoverable because we can go to customers and ask them, hey, when you're preparing a meal, let's go through all the steps you're going through and tell me what you're trying to do. And then tell me, how are you measuring success along each step of the way? What are you trying to achieve? What are you trying to avoid? And by going down that simple path, you end up with this series of statements that are the metrics people are going to use to judge the value of your product. That's the first step. The second step then is to go uh, take those inputs, put them in a survey, and uh, send it out to oh hundreds of, of potential customers, people who are trying to get that job done. And we ask them to tell us how important is each outcome, and given the solution that you're using, what is your current level of satisfaction? And what we're looking for is for them to tell us and for us to discover those needs that are very important and not well satisfied. So of the 100 needs or 50 needs or whatever number we capture, we can then pinpoint with a good level of precision exactly where customers are underserved, is the way we say it. You know, where were they struggling to get the job done? Once we identify those top unmet needs, we can then present them to the engineers and the material scientists and the experts inside that organization and say, hey, we've got this insight from your customers. Here's where they're struggling. Let's work together to come up with a solution that addresses each one of these needs. And in a very quick fashion, uh, these teams generally come up with solutions in, in less than a day or less than two days. You know, and, one of the things that I heard you say a couple of yeah. minutes ago was that IBM, in the course of uh, building this PC Junior, pretty much gave it the same utility as their main business, which were at that time those mainframe computers. So uh, it's like make them smaller. Maybe they won't be as fast or as strong, but they're going to do the same thing. The utility will be mostly the same. And they thought that was a whole different product because it would be smaller, less powerful, similar utility. And that turned out to be totally off the mark because what people want to do with it was something completely new that knew that they'd never been able to do before. So how, how did that process go? Like, what were they thinking that they thought that a smaller, littler box was going to be uh, perfectly excellent? Well, they were trying to, they were in essence segmenting by price point. They thought, well, we, we have our big giant computers, then we have our PCs that are used in businesses, like the ones you mentioned, the PCATs. And then they thought, well, let's come up with just a lower cost version and aim that at the home, the home buyer. But they were selling the home buyer the same applications as they were selling the business person. Spreadsheets, you know, PowerPoint, VisiCalc, you know, things like that. Well, you know, what, what listeners have to realize is that there weren't any applications in those days. I mean, there really wasn't anything. There wasn't, there was Excel and you could like do manage your checkbook there. There wasn't QuickBooks. There wasn't, there wasn't anything. It just, it was brand, everything was brand new. So, uh, right. You know, everybody was kind of inventing these things. You take a spreadsheet or you take a, a Word document and they didn't even have Word at that time. It was it was uh, Multimate, some of these other programs. I mean, the, the, the Lotus and Lotus was, the, it wasn't even Excel. It was Lotus in the 80s, right, at that time. Yeah, so that's uh, right. But they yeah. didn't have any, there weren't any applications. The concept of applications almost really hardly didn't exist. 
That's right. So they started using the same applications or pushing the same applications people would use in business to the home people. And the people at home were saying, I don't want to do this at home. (laughs) 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 To to their credit, they did uh, add some gaming options that made it a bit more of a gaming machine, but that wasn't its key focus. And uh, there were other pure gaming machines that beat it out on that front as well. So even, even it, uh, gaming was so uh, was so backwards back then. It was uh, yeah. these uh, silly looking, uh, you know, cartoons. It was antiquated, especially compared to today's uh, yeah. technology. It's it's funny to think back on it. So so what are what are some of the big takeaways? So, uh, you know, are these are these surveys that you create? Are they sent out to people uh, like thousands of people or, or is it better to have? Uh, personal one-on-one meetings with some people where you can really examine a topic or do you think you end up getting confirmation bias from from one approach or another i mean what do you think is the best approach sure so there's i break the research into two components one is the qualitative portion where we sit with customers potential customers and we ask them how do, how do they measure success when getting the job done? Basically, we have them take us through the entire job at a very slow pace, and we capture these 50 to 100 outcome statements. Then we take those and we put them in a survey. That goes out to peop, uh, just a larger sample of customers, people who are trying to get that job done. And if we can get inputs from three, 400,000 people in some consumer markets, uh, we can pinpoint with a lot of precision where they're struggling to get the job done. And there's one other really important factor that we've uh, we use to our advantage, and that is with these insights, you can now segment your market around these unmet needs. Now, I know this sounds like marketing 101, but quite literally, nobody segments their markets around unmet needs because they don't know what a need is. They don't. They're not these metrics tied to the job to be done. Well, and, that that opens up yeah. an interesting question. What's the difference between marketing an existing product and marketing a prospective product, you know, because you're talking about, you know, that there's a substantial difference and there is a difference. I mean, one you're talking about saying no one's ever heard of before. And the other one you're talking about uh, something that everybody's familiar with, or maybe they're somewhat familiar with. Yeah. Well, uh, many of the clients that we work with have products in the market already. Right. So the questions they ask is just like you asked, you know, how do I, how do I improve my current product? before I go create a brand new product? Like, can, is there something I can do right away? Or can I just remarket my current product? I'll give you a great example. When we worked with uh, Cordis Corporation, uh, we found that the angioplasty balloons satisfied a, a, a handful of unmet needs better than their competitors, but they weren't marketing around those needs. So we at, we suggested that they revamp their marketing to uh, tout those advantages they had over their competitors along those different unmet needs that helped them gain some market share without even changing the product. What happened uh, next is we also pointed out where those products were underserving the market or trailing the competitor. And so they focused on the next set of needs that caught them up to the competition. And lastly, we pointed out where everybody's underserved. Like there were some needs that were unmet or underserved by every competitor. So nobody was leading the market along those fronts. And that's how you leapfrog the competitor. So by following that approach, uh, they came up with a new line of angioplasty balloons a year and a half later, uh, 19 products, all of which became number one or two in the marketplace. Their market share went from roughly one and a half percent to over 20%. It was just a, a huge win. Again, by understanding the needs, 
before coming up with the solutions. So what, what, what's interesting uh, that I'm hearing you say is that sometimes is sometimes innovation is the product, but sometimes innovation is just telling the marketing story a little better. Sure. And, and, you know, and then it doesn't require any product development, but maybe you need a survey to find out how people are using your product. And if they're using it different than you think, it might have solved an innovation solution uh, without even changing the product around. That's right. We have a great example in a case study with Arm & Hammer's Animal Nutrition Group who did exactly that. Uh, they were focused on the, the nutritionists and their job to be done, and that's who their sales team approached. But what we determined is that the real customer is the dairy herdsman who's trying to uh, uh, optimize dairy herd productivity. And by talking to them about this bigger job and positioning their product in, in the right manner, uh, without changing the product or the price, they grew 30% year over year just by taking a different message to uh, to the buyer as opposed to the nutritionist. And so, like you said, you can <laughs> you can increase market share, you can gain revenue, uh, you can gain advantage uh, by just restating what you already have. Come up with a better value proposition, one that connects or resonates uh, more closely with customers. Yeah. All right. So let's so let's talk about the back half of that then. So let's say that you found out that uh, there were unmet needs that customers had. Uh, they were using your product, but the product wasn't getting everything done. They told you there was a few things if you did something a little differently that they'd be excited about it. How does that whole process unfold? So once we know, uh, once we do the work, so I'll go back to the segmentation analysis where we can segment around unmet needs. And uh, once we have discovered those segments with different unmet needs, we can start taking the company's existing products and say, hey, you should take product A and aim it at that segment and improve it along these dimensions. And you should take product B, aim it at this segment, improve it along this set of dimensions, and so on. So we can start taking their products and pointing them in the right directions. Uh, I like calling this the most efficient path to growth, right? You talk about an advantage. Um, if, if you knew which customer needs, uh, if satisfied, would have the greatest impact on the biggest population, you'd be stacking the odds in your favor, right? Because Nobody could beat you because you're creating value at a pace that nobody else could create it because you're you're focused on the biggest unmet needs in the in the customer population. So once we, this is what we call um, discovering the opportunities in problem space. So in other words, we can point out, hey, if you satisfy this need, it'll it'll impact a hundred percent of the population. The impact, if you satisfy this need, it could be eighty percent of the population, and so on. We can get this in priority order. Right. So that's the opportunities and problem space. Now, what happens next is uh, reality. Right? Reality says, I may not be able to solve all those needs in that priority order in solution space. Like, I don't know how I can't come up with a solution. It's technically impossible. So you're going to take some subset of those opportunities you discovered in problem space and start working on them in solution space. So uh, there may be 10 unmet needs. And maybe you can only address six of them, but that's going to be uh, your path to success in your next product iteration. The so product iteration after. Do you do you encourage uh, medium-sized companies, for example, to establish research departments? Because what you're really talking about is continuous, ongoing research, always asking customers, "How are we doing? How are we doing?" Not in a, a customer service capacity, but in a is the product meeting your needs capacity. Because that's uh, that's an integral part of the whole innovation cycle that you're describing. 
Yeah, Joe, that's a very astute question. And what's interesting about this is once you know these needs and the way we define them, we call them desired outcome statements. They're the way people measure success when getting the job done. They're stable over time. Like the, the cooking example, you know, minimize the likelihood of overcooking the meal or undercooking. These have been needs in the job of cooking for, you know, forever, right? So what changes year over year is as new technologies come along to get the job done better, opportunities migrate, right? So that's what you want to keep track of. So we do teach people to do market research and refresh this set of data every couple of years or so to see, you know, now that now that you've satisfied this set of needs, now now what's going on? Is there a new set of unmet needs, and where do you go next? So you're you're always creating more and more value, and eventually helping customers get the job done perfectly. How would you say companies do at this research component? Keeping an eye on how people are using their product, what needs to happen next. Do you think people are focused enough? Companies are focused enough on doing that sort of thing? Or do you think they're focused too much on bells and whistles? Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the dirty little secret of innovation. Uh, and that is, and we pulled this for 30 years. I've asked this statement to many audiences. And the question I ask is, is there agreement on your product team as to what a customer need even is? What do you think the answer is? Probably not. 90% say no. We don't even agree on what a customer need is. So what what companies are uh, are failing to do is to, they, they fall down the the Henry Ford trap, right? They say, oh, if if I ask people what they want, they they'll say they want a faster horse. So why should I even ask people about their needs? Now what they're doing there is they're conflating solutions with needs, right? <laughs> Henry Ford is saying people don't know what solutions they want, but they certainly know what they're trying to to achieve, right? So, so this is one of the big fallacies in, in the innovation space. Product teams conflate solutions with needs, but in reality, solution satisfies need. That means we have to define a need in a unique way. And this is why if we tie, if we define a need as a metric you're using to measure success when getting a job done, and we can go out and capture all those metrics, now we know all the metrics people are going to use to judge the value of our product. We call this outcome-driven innovation. That's the, the the brand of our approach and the way it's trademarked. Um, and the goal is simple. Let's start with the end in mind. What's the outcome of the customers trying to achieve? Where are they struggling achieving those outcomes and then building it forward? And most product teams don't agree that innovation is even a process. Most product teams don't agree on the best way to define markets. Right. So you can see the issue here, right? If you can't agree on what a need is, then how can the team agree on what the needs are and which are unmet? And if there's segments of people with different unmet needs and what's the best solution, right? This is the problem with innovation. It really comes down to that in a nutshell. You know, I'm just sitting here thinking, uh, do university curricula, do they talk about innovation? I mean, there's marketing classes, there's accounting classes, finance classes, all these different things. But the real, you're you're really talking about a whole branch, innovation, and the process for innovation, the rhythm for innovation needs to be done in a certain way. Is that anything that's broached anywhere in, in, in the university environment? Well, I know more and more universities are recommending my my books that I've put out there as as reading, recommended reading, or white papers or those types of things. But um, but there is no um 
there is no course that just teaches this one way. What most innovation courses in uh, universities talk about are all types of processes as if they're all okay, right? And they they leave it to the uh, student or the innovator to kind of sort, sort through it and figure out, well, which which approach should I use and when and that kind of thing. And yeah, I, I, sort of, I sort of noticed that um, yeah. that's kind of the model that's kind of been around for the last 30 years is, uh, you know, the computer comes along and it's like a big lump of clay and you can mold the clay any way you want and no one's going to tell you how to do it. The problem with that is that we don't end up with any uniformity. We don't end up with, uh, you know, commonality. We don't end up with systems. You know, when we were little children, you know, you and I are probably about the same age. We were marched into the library in first or second grade. And they said, okay, here's the Dewey Decimal System. And this is how you find every book in the library. And every library in the world's organized the same way. And anybody go to any library anywhere. But if you came to my office and you looked at my computer, you wouldn't recognize the file system. <laughs> and so if a, if a person goes from one job to another job, uh, they can't immediately walk in and just start working with the files because everything is organized in a different way. So I think that this model of, of just kind of figuring out for yourself, I don't think it's going that great. Well, it's not. I mean, what it's forcing people to do is to quite literally cobble together inconsistent, incompatible processes as if they all fit together somehow and produce a predictable output, which is ridiculous. So, you know, they suggest using open innovation with VOC and add some lean, throw in a little agile, do some design thinking, um, you know, and, and as if the amalgamation of all these different approaches is going to come together into a process that produces predictable results. But the reality is it makes it even worse because these these processes aren't and never were intended to work together. They're all trying to get different jobs done, if you will. And uh, combining them together is just a, a, a waste of time. Uh, you know, we've pride ourselves on the outcome-driven innovation process because we view it as end-to-end, -end, right? From the, define, from the time you define your market as a group of people getting a job done, to understanding their needs as metrics, to quantify them, to segmenting around them, to coming up with the priority order of unmet needs, to translating that into feature set that's going to win in the market. It's all connected, right? It's all connected through the same lens. It's customer-centric, right? Everything started because a group of people are trying to get a job done, right? And the entire process is arranged uh, so that we could discover, quantify, and uh, analyze and use those inputs to our advantage. Do you think that um, artificial intelligence is going to help to solve this problem at all? In other words, if you ask people what they need, and, and Henry Ford would say faster horses, right? If you ask them what they need and people don't know, do you think artificial intelligence is going to do a better job of predicting what people need than people can do for themselves? Well, so we're right in the midst of that, right? So um, I'm experimenting uh, to see what what AI can tell us in, in our queries. And so let's say it like this. you know, I can spend eight hours uh, doing queries and, you know, trying to engineer some prompts that might pull out information that could be a customer need. Or I could go sit with three or four customers for eight hours and study the job they're trying to get done, break it down into process steps, and work with them to uncover all their needs as they're saying them, right? So I'll know that they're true unmet needs because I'm collecting them directly from customers. So 
where would I rather spend my eight hours is kind of the question that I'm at right now. Well, right now. let's let's examine it in a different way. Yep. Some benefit comes out of each one. Yep. So rather than one is one is superior or or we're doing all or nothing on one or the other, what's really good about what comes out of AI? What's really good out of what comes with sitting with some people? Yeah. So I think what's good about AI, uh, in terms of helping to define the job that they're trying to get done, it's pretty effective. Uh, in terms of creating job maps, which are the steps that people go through, somewhat effective. Uh, it seems to have a bit of trouble thinking in problem space. It's, it tends to think in solution space, even though we're, we're trying to get it to think in problem space. And uh, in, in terms of collecting all the outcome statements, those final metrics, it seems pretty weak at... Uh, it, it comes up with very generic metrics, N things that aren't, aren't actionable enough or not detailed enough. It doesn't it, it doesn't get to the level of granularity that we really need to make them um, actionable and, and useful inputs into the innovation process. So that's where it stands now. Um, that could all change. But, you know, if we can automate the ability to capture those needs and quantify them, uh, that will get us to the end game even faster. And I, I, I guess that's where the industry is going and we, we're hoping to lead the way. So you've got, so the, the AI can maybe come up with some process, can come up with some steps or some bullet points, whatever those are. Then you sit down with the people and do you think that the AI would make those meetings with people better? Not during the meeting. Um, in, in fact, you know, what we do is we take what we learn from AI and we use it as an input into the meeting with customers and let the customers validate it. You know, is this what you're trying to do? Is it in this order? Are we missing steps, right? So we don't let AI do the validation for us. We just use it to help us start thinking about that space um, and getting some basic knowledge about it. But uh, we'd much rather rely on, on the customers themselves to tell us exactly how they think about measuring success. Interesting. So what um, what's new in this space? I mean, what do we, what can we expect? I mean, has this space been kind of stagnant or is this space a uh, rapidly moving uh, kind of environment? Well, you know, uh, so we, I mentioned a few things. Uh, half the population believes that innovation is not a process to this day. Like they believe it cannot be a process. It can't be predictable. It can't be programmed. It can't be automated. Uh, so you have that. Uh, and then you've got, of those who believe it can be somewhat automated, they approach it from an ideas first standpoint. There's methodologies out there like Lean Startup that suggest people uh, hypothesize the, the market, the product, and the customer's needs up front and try to guess at it and then go out and experiment and see if they guessed right, which is all experimentation. It's all about pivoting and failing fast. And that's the problem with the ideas first approach to innovation. And now you have a small group of people who, uh, after 30 years of me pushing it, are are outcome driven, right? Where they use the approach that I'm talking about and get a much better success rate. So I think where the industry's at is, um, you know, we're, we're going through this slow adoption phase and this realization that uh, innovation is a process that needs can be discovered. Customers don't have late needs and should be ignored because they don't know what they want, right? So there's, a, I think there's a lot of mindset shift that needs to take place uh, before companies will even begin at, at a wholesale mainstream level to adopt this concept that innovation is predictable. 
and there are tools available uh, to help you succeed, right? And it's not cheating, right? It's just information that you can use to help guide decisions in a way that uh, that your competitors aren't. Listen, I, I would say that uh, whether people believe there's a specific process or not, there's certainly a rhythm that successful people employ. And I, I have a sense that you've got a very clear rhythm, the, the way the research happens, the way the questionnaireing happens, all the rest. So it, to me, it's it's crystal clear that there's absolutely that. And, you know, the, the theme of the show, uh, Your Advantage Play, is really to uncover the killer strategy you use to solve problems that gives you a significant competitive advantage. And, and I heard it. I heard what it is, is, is the, the concept of turning this into a process that's repeatable, that helps you to uh, get out in front of your competitors. And uh, and that's really powerful. Indeed. We've spent a lifetime putting it together. Uh, I think the process is uh, is really solid. And, you know, our goal in the coming years is to make it more uh, approachable and easier to consume so that, uh, that you know, we can change the way the world innovates. Listen, to me, when uh, when somebody, you know, shares their advantage play, you know, to me, that person uh, is an advantage player and that makes you an advantage player in our eyes. And, and I certainly appreciate you being on the show and sharing your ideas. And, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, I hope you'll continue to be a friend of the show. Thank you, Joel, for the invite. I certainly appreciate that and the opportunity. Great. Well, listen, man, uh, good to meet you. And thanks for sharing your ideas. Thank you. You've been listening to Your Advantage Play with your host, Joel Block. To learn more about how to work with Joel and cultivate your own high-limit advantage plays, visit theadvantageplayer.com. Subscribe to Your Advantage Play wherever you get your podcasts.